0: You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported.
1: Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting remotely for WFHB, this is Benedict Jones.
0: And I'm Noelle Herhusky schneider This is the WFHB Local News for Tuesday, May 24th, 2022.
1: Later in the program, WFHB News speaks with Katie Shai, media correspondent for the Indiana Graduate Workers' Coalition, about two recently passed resolutions by the Bloomington Faculty Council providing a pathway to unionization for the IGWC. More in today's feature report.
0: Also coming up in the next half hour, the Monroe County Redevelopment Commission discussed a study on the cost of development in Monroe County at their latest meeting. That's coming up next in your local headlines.
1: On May 18th at the Monroe County Redevelopment Commission meeting, commission member Richard Martin introduced a speaker who presented on the cost of development in Monroe County.
2: Uh, First item on the agenda today is a presentation I've been trying to get together for six months now, something like that. (laughs) Um, When we first started uh, working on this idea of of an affordable housing um, opportunity that we might be able to put forward through the commission, Uh, I recalled a presentation that Steve had done to um, a member, a group of the Economic Development uh, uh, Corporation some couple of years ago, which had to do with the the aspects of cost involved in development projects. And I thought it would be appropriate for us to understand better what the costs were so we could uh, work on identifying those areas of cost where we could have some influence to keep the cost low enough so that the project would actually be affordable. Uh, and in that uh, vein, I asked Steve to uh, put together something that, uh, from that presentation, and he kindly uh, uh, offered to do so, and he is here today to talk to us about the cost of development.
1: The research on development in Monroe County was originally done in 2019, which Steve's describes having changed since his original findings.
3: What I saw in in 19, when I did this presentation, I looked at local information and I saw that in 2008, building permits dropped in half from what they had previously been. Uh, I had the numbers, but but they literally dropped in half in 2008. And what happened is they stayed at half since then. There's never been a rebound from the pre-2008 building levels, but population continued on the same upward curve. So obviously, shortage It's just a question how long and again, those curves have continued to today so so that that idea of more population and, and not enough housing has been around for 1214 uh, years. Uh, the 2008 recession really stopped a lot of development well. A lot of development had to stop because of the recession, but it did stop. And a lot of those people that were developing and building didn't get back in the industry a lot, retired a lot, just did something else. And also important then was that the banking situation changed substantially in a way. What changed? The banking situation, the financing for for development. Before 2008, uh, a lot of people could put a subdivision together because you could borrow most of the money. I mean most maybe 90 percent borrow maybe after the recession you couldn't do that Uh, you might borrow half the money big difference so some people that were uh, energetic and risk-taking could put a project together with a reasonable amount of money before the recession after the recession those people weren't in the game anymore because you had to have more money so
1: that put a lot of people out also the presenter shared that on monday he read an article in the new york times about the issue pointing out that the housing development decrease post-2008 occurred nationally as well. He said that the article recommended three things local governments can do to help. Uh, the first is to relax zoning restrictions,
3: interesting, countrywide, not just Monroe County or Bloomington. Um, the second is to address constraints to construction, supply chain, workers' expenses, and emphasize workers' You know, we don't have as many skilled tradesmen as we had before 2008 because those guys retired and there's not a new group coming up because there wasn't much going on. And now we're short. And then the third thing they said was to help developers finance projects, particularly affordable projects. Uh, Well, that's exactly the same experience I had, you know, back in 08, help financing because people can't finance their projects. So the same thing is true today, but it's true across the country, according to Wall
1: Street Journal on Monday. So the trends have continued and gotten worse. He said that the interest rates on development make the cost of developing more expensive than the residents in the county can afford. The next Monroe County Redevelopment Meeting will be held on June 15th.
0: At the Bloomington City Council meeting on May 18th, Councilmember Steve Volan shared during his report that he has joined a nationwide entity called Coalition Against Bigger Trucks that aims to reduce the size of vehicles allowed on public roads.
4: I mention it now because um, I got a letter today um, about the new car assessment program that's uh, uh, be, that the National Highway Traffic Safety uh, Administration is seeking comments on. Um, and I was... Uh, uh, pointed to this by uh, former county commissioner and city council member, Charlotte Zitlow, uh, whose uh, daughter-in-law uh, is asking everyone who can to, uh, to make comments on this new policy because one thing that it's not doing uh, is questioning many of the assumptions that perhaps some of us uh, have failed to notice about how cars are getting bigger especially that the average car that Americans are um, driving are getting bigger, weightier, larger in the front. And uh, uh, there's an opportunity now until June 8th to make comments on this program that I wanted to call people's attention to because I agree with uh, Charlotte and with uh, her daughter-in-law, Sarah Risser, that uh, this is a matter that we should be thinking about, that we all maybe take for granted, uh, how much uh, uh, the, the, ch- the small choices that we make or the choices that uh, manufacturers make lead to undesirable outcomes. Um, and From the letter she says, uh, the U.S. has lagged woefully behind Europe in terms of road safety for decades, but the gap is growing wider. In the U.S., road fatalities have been skyrocketing since the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic whereas they've continued to decline in other similarly developed countries. Cyclists and pedestrian fatalities are outpacing total road fatalities, and this has been correlated with large SUVs and pickup trucks by the NHSTA. Very large SUVs and pickup trucks are making up an ever-increasing share of vehicular traffic. Larger vehicles are two to three times more likely to kill a pedestrian than smaller models due to their weight, height, and aggressive front-end vehicle design, yet the National Highway Transportation Safety Administration has been unwilling to address this directly. You can see it because uh, uh, dimensions of cars are not part of the new NCAP program. And in case uh, you don't have the context, Sarah Risser's son and Charlotte Zitlow's grandson, Henry Zitlow, was killed three years ago uh, driving a Subaru Forester on a Wisconsin Highway, when a Dodge Ram truck towing uh, a Ford Fusion that didn't have, whose trailer didn't have brakes, uh, and was not connected properly to handle its weight, uh, struck and killed him and destroyed his car. So uh, we're all responsible for the vehicles that we put on the roads and for how we wield them. Um, and that's not just true for between-car interactions. It's also true for how we handle everybody else who deserves to be able to use a road, uh, whether that person is in a car, on foot, on a bike, yes, even on a scooter. Um, it's it's uh, an issue of our time, and I appreciate her for bringing it to my attention. And uh, uh, between those two different initiatives, I want to say that. Uh, I would ask everyone to rethink their assumptions about how they get around in a motorized vehicle. Thank you.
0: Planning Department O'Neill Fellow Ben Sheriff gave a report on the Bloomington Habitat Connectivity Plan. Sheriff said that their goal is to connect the three areas of green spaces around the city with green corridors by engaging with the public landowners. He will be graduating soon and will not be able to keep working on the project. However, he hopes that the next O'Neill Fellow will continue with the next steps.
5: Um, And what's uh, pretty cool about this plan is it uh, correlates very much to the comprehensive plan of 2018, uh, specifically goal 3.4 in the subsections along with that, and also along with the climate action plan, um, goal number G1, um, if you wanna take a look and go back to that. And so essentially from the Bloomington Habitat connectivity plan, I'm not gonna go into it all today considering it was developed in 2017, but I will discuss uh, the five recommendations that they were able to develop And so the five recommendations are as follows. uh, The first being conserve habitat before, during, and after development. Two, prioritize the habitat potential and permanent connectivity of an area when making land use decisions. Three, connect isolated areas of habitat by producing green space corridors. Four, enhance habitat quality in stable areas. And five, inform Bloomington residents of the ecological benefits of habitat connectivity and encourage citizen involvement in habitat restoration. And so, Over the past year or so, um, myself and the Bloomington Environmental Commission have directly targeted um, recommendations three through five through two deliverables, uh, two action items, Um, and I'll get to those in a sec, but I would like to just mention um, in the next slide um, why you all should care. And so the first reason being is, um, as you probably know, wildlife is in steep decline across the planet. Um, For example, bee species are in a lot of trouble right now. Biodiversity is down quite a bit. And this is um, in one large part due to fragmentation um, and a lack of green space in urban areas. And so um, this is gonna have a really terrible effects, especially in the city of Bloomington. It can um, cause problems with soil quality Um, It can also cause a lot of issues with dispersal of getting new tree species uh, around the city. Um, And it can also affect uh, erosion um, for various different processes. And so wildlife just really contributes so many different environmental services that we're not even aware of really um, right now. Um, So that's one of the reasons. And then obviously, I'm sure you have heard about uh, climate change and how serious of an issue it is. Um, And you've just developed a climate action plan, which is wonderful. Um, but we need to really do whatever we can to increase the amount of green space that we have to make sure that we have climate resilient infrastructure because in the city of Bloomington, we are expected to uh, see uh, not necessarily more rain, but a larger intensity of rain, so when it does rain, there will be increased flooding. And so we wanna be able to develop things like rain gardens, Um, we wanna create bioswales as much as possible and other um, type of climate resilient infrastructure to combat this uh, as much as possible. And so the city's already doing this, which is great. Uh, they're planting a lot of native species, um, which is awesome. Uh, I know MC Iris does a lot of work because um, MC, uh, the invasive species throughout um, the city are spreading quite rapidly, and this can cause a lot of problems with soil quality again. Um, erosion, um, pollution can get worse as well because of these invasive species. And so we just wanna keep that in mind as well. Um, another really important thing is that um, Human well-being is just obviously going to be better um, when nature is around, whether it's going for runs in the forest or sitting at a park bench and watching squirrels play or something like that. Uh, there have been new, numerous scientific reports just saying how important it is, it, it is to have green space and nature around, and it's just going to improve everyone's confidence and everyone's mood uh, as well.
0: Sheriff also said they will need to update existing information. He said that since they started the project in 2011, the green spaces in some areas have improved and decreased in others. He recommended that aerial imaging be taken soon to get a picture of what the city currently looks like in terms of wildlife connectivity. The next meeting will be held on May 25th.
1: In today's feature report, WFHB News Director Kate Young speaks with Katie Shai, media correspondent for the Indiana Graduate Workers Coalition, about two recently passed resolutions by the Bloomington Faculty Council, providing a pathway to unionization for the IGWC.
6: Well, Katie Shai, media correspondent for the Indiana Graduate Workers' Coalition, welcome to the WFHB Local News.
7: Thank you for having me.
6: Well, thank you for for being here. So on Monday, the Bloomington Faculty Council passed two resolutions calling on the IU Board of Trustees to provide a pathway to unionization for the Indiana Grad Workers United Electrical Workers Union. Now, would you walk me through these two resolutions and sort of, you know, what they, they mean and the significance of these two resolutions recently passed?
7: Absolutely. So the first resolution is called Concerning Shared Governance and Graduate Student Supervision. Um, and over 1,600 faculty members voted yes on this resolution. Um, And basically this one is concerning um, the primary role of each department in determining when grad workers are reappointed. So one of the major turning points this semester uh, was the provost threatening to fire all striking graduate workers. And this resolution really responds that move and asserts that departments are the ones equipped to evaluate uh, if a grad worker should be reappointed. right? Professors have the academic expertise to say this student uh, is the one I want for my program. So this one is really an assertion from the faculty that the provost kind of overstepped in threatening to fire SAAs. And it, it shows right that in the fall, Ah, uh, the provost won't be able to make that threat credibly if the graduate workers coalition has to go on strike again. The sure. second resolution concerning student academic appointees and administration, and this one has over fourteen hundred yes votes, uh, and it calls on the board of trustees to set up a union election on campus, and it calls on campus administrators to enter dialogue with the union immediately. So this one is really saying what we've been saying all along, that there's no prohibition, right? There's no roadblock in the way of the administration giving us this union election, this NLRB election that dozens of universities across the country have been able to enjoy. So it's calling for a union election and then asking the administrators at IEP to go ahead and, and start that process of reasonable, transparent conversation with the union. Um, And again, all of this, you know, the union is ready to begin that dialogue as soon as possible. And we're eager to get things resolved before the possibility of a fall strike.
6: You know, I just kind of want to ask you generally, would you talk about why support from the Bloomington Faculty Council? is important to the Grad Workers Union, what that means to get support from the Bloomington Faculty Council kind of standing behind you.
7: Right, and it's not just support. This is a a really overwhelming display of the faculty will. Uh, 1,900 faculty members participated in this vote. And there really is no higher body on our campus to endorse the Grad Student Union. Right. This is as strong of a message as we can send to the Board of Trustees that the Bloomington campus is ready for the Grad Workers Coalition to represent grad workers. And so we feel this is a really, uh, really powerful opportunity for the administration to start a new relationship with grad employees.
6: Now, I want to get a a little bit of a reflection on the strike from you as a media correspondent for the grad workers. So, the grad workers went on strike from April 13th through May 9th. In your view, how did that strike uh, play out?
7: The strike was an incredible, transformational four weeks for IUB's campus as a whole and for the workers in our union. We had a lot of big successes. Notably, you know, our votes each week to reauthorize continuing the strike had these overwhelming yes margins over 95% each week voting to stay on strike. We had a strong picket line every day. We stopped some deliveries from reaching campus um, as part of that picket. We had undergrads joining us on the picket line, giving their testimonials, explaining why they were in support. And we were able to just really learn lessons together about the power that we have when we stand up for our own rights and working conditions. And so I think that grad workers, although we haven't seen the material improvements that we're still fighting for, we are in a really strong position heading into the fall to keep working on each other's behalf.
6: You know, for our listeners who might not be familiar with some of the latest developments with the Grad Workers Coalition, just going back to the basics, what are your specific demands as a union, you know, for those who may not be familiar?
7: Our platform has five planks. So we're hoping to end the fees, the mandatory fees that are extracted out of our first paycheck each year. Um, or in some cases do even before we've been compensated at all. So fourteen hundred a year for domestic students and two thousand dollars a year for international students going back to IU out of stipends that are way below the cost of living in Bloomington, by you know, the gold standard estimate, which is MIT's, and by the university's own estimate of what it takes to live in Bloomington. So the first two things we're fighting for are ending the fees and making a living wage. We're also fighting for fairness for international students. Uh, we're fighting for an improved benefits package, and we're fighting for an effective grievance procedure. And while we've been working towards these goals, you know, for several years now, it's only in the past year that we've also added union recognition as, you know, one of our main aims as a group. As the most meaningful way that we can have input into our conditions moving forward.
6: Absolutely. And that is a perfect segue into my next question, was that, you know, the the university has still yet to formally recognize the union, as I understand it. So, you know, what do you think it will take to finally get the recognition that you at the grad workers are looking for and hoping for, what do you think it will take to, for the university to finally recognize the Indiana Graduate Workers Coalition as a union?
7: It's really hard to say with any degree of confidence, but we're hoping that this extremely strong message from the faculty vote will really push the Board of Trustees to begin that process of starting up either recognizing our union straight out or giving us that union election where we can democratically express our will to be represented. I think, you know, the faculty are sending a really strong statement. We went on strike for four weeks in the spring. That's a lot of classes that didn't happen. So it's it's really unbelievable that that wasn't enough of a push towards the administration. And so hopefully this this faculty vote provides a new opportunity for them.
6: Now the strike has been postponed in the here and now, uh, as you mentioned. So talk about what's next for the Indiana graduate workers coalition, maybe in the summer and then especially come fall. What are your, what are your plans?
7: Mm-hmm. We have a really exciting set of plans for both summer and fall. Over the summer, we're going to be working to build our local, so our branch of United Electrical Workers. Um, and so we'll be doing things like electing our bargaining committee, electing our local leadership, setting up what we want our structure to look like, our bylaws, our regular meetings, so that we have a really strong infrastructure, communications framework, all that ready to go in the fall. And we're spending time also just, you know, checking in with each other, continuing to uh, build the relationships that make our union so strong. And then when we come back in the fall, we're going to be exploring ways to make our strike even more effective. So we'll be exploring moving uh, learning materials off of university systems. And we'll be exploring, you know, ways for different groups that weren't able to withhold labor in the spring. ways to bring those groups into our strike as well, folks like research assistants. Um, and with that strong groundwork laid, you know, we have this strike deadline of September 26, 2022. And we're really hoping that we'll be able to enter into a constructive dialogue with the administration before then, but also really excited about the strength of our membership and the strength of the next collective action.
6: I wanna give you the last word here. Is there anything else that you would like to add before we part ways?
7: I really think, you know, we've talked a lot about what our strike has accomplished and what we're looking towards in the fall. Um, but we haven't talked so much about the bigger picture, which I also, you know, want to keep in play, which is we really believe that um, an IU with a grad workers union is an IU where undergraduate and graduate education is flourishing. Right, the grad workers union will make IU a more excellent place for teaching and research and learning our objectives are very much aligned with, you know, the faculties, which is what we're seeing in this vote, with our students, and with the future of the university.
6: Absolutely. Now, Katie Shai, media correspondent for the Indiana Graduate Workers Coalition, thank you for coming on to the WFHB local news.
7: Thank you so much for having me.
1: You've been listening to the WFHB Local News. Today's headlines were written by Noelle Herhusky-Schneider in partnership with CATS, Community Access Television Services. Our feature was produced by Cade Young.
0: Our theme music is provided by Mark Bingham and the Social Climbers. Engineer and executive producer is Cade Young. For WFHB, I'm Noelle Herhusky-Schneider.
1: And I'm Benedict Jones. a program that explores our solar system and beyond. Coming up next on WFHB Community Radio.
6: You've been listening to the WFHB Local News on WFHB Community Radio.